Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis, to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can I begin? Then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So <sighs> thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, folks. So today I have quite the honor. Our guest today is Brianne Dalton. Our guest today is um, quite possibly one of the most honest, candid, um, bravest women I know. And I met her after a series of joyful events. You see, last month was a whirlwind. September 2021 will go down um, as quite the eventful month, but part of that journey, I got to go out to the Mississippi Speech-Language Hearing Association um, State Convention for their annual convention in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, I got to do a presentation out there. And while I was out there, there was a young lady in the audience, and there I am lecturing on pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders and why fed is fed is fed is fed, regardless of how it gets in the body, because we need that body nourished. Because if a body isn't nourished, then they're not at a point of healing. And anywho, I'm there talking on this, and you know how sometimes good Lord just brings a soul into your life and you just recognize it and you see it? 
Well, there she was. She was sitting, what, third row in on the outer edge with your backpack, and you were connected to your J-tube, and I'm there lecturing about it, and you opened up about experiences right then and there, and it was so brave. And so a couple of sidebar conversations later, um, there was definitely wine because Mississippi knows how to throw a shindig. Let me tell you what. There's wine after the convention, not during the lecture, to be fair. Her and I got to chatting and I asked this incredible second year SLP graduate student from University of Southern Mississippi to come on and be a guest because what a fabulous way to kick off the brand new codes that we have access to than interviewing an individual who has had life-altering firsthand experiences, which is going to be able to have her connect with the little ones that she will serve in her lifetime. So there we are. Hello. Thank you for coming on. Hi. Also, wow, what a comedy of errors to get here. I almost broke Bear's arm. It was a soccer ball. You stepped in dog poop, but we made it. Hooray. (laughs) I mean, you know, things happen and we're here, but I really, really appreciate those kind words. They were making me tear up because I do feel like it was such a God thing that you were there speaking and every feeding talk at our mission convention, I'm always there like wide-eyed and trying to take as many notes as possible, but it was just a blessing to have you there. And it's, I was about in tears when you asked me to come on just because it was the most amazing thing I think anyone's ever asked me to come do. So. Ha, huh. well, if you're putting me as your um as your as your yardstick measurement, honey, I I am I am nothing to do a yardstick by, but thank you. Huzzah. <laughs> okay. Well, okay, so here here we are and let's start at the beginning. I always like to start our speakers with what made them want to be a speech language pathologist. And you are still on that journey. So, what made you want to be a speech language pathologist and then uh Let's uh, segue into what made you want to focus on feeding. So that also was a total God thing as well. I started school as like microbiology and biochemistry major, and I made it all the way to junior year and was doing honors college and an honors thesis. And I got into a lab and was watching clear liquids go through a tube all day. And this was prior to me getting sick and needing all of the health interventions that I ended up needing later on. But so I'm sitting there watching clear liquids go through a tube all day in the lab. And I'm sitting there like, I cannot do this anymore. This is ridiculous. I can't. And my mind is feeling that. And I'm walking past the Dubard School and the Children's Center and where our speech and hearing building is. And I look over there and I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I'm just going to change my major to speech pathology just on a whim, middle of junior year. And so it was something that God was just saying, this is what you need to do. This is where you're needed. And so then it was ended up being a really good thing when I got sick and everything happened because I realized that I could focus on feeding therapy and work with little ones that are just like me. And the first time I worked with little kiddos that had a feeding tube, they didn't have the words to express themselves and express their feelings just yet. But you could see their eyes light up when I showed them my feeding tube and their eyes light up and then they'll cling to you. And just that feeling of getting the warm fuzzies and those chill bumps of they realize that they're not any different than the person that they're working with was the best feeling in the world. And I never wanted to let that feeling go. And so I just want to work with and advocate for the littles that can't advocate for themselves just yet and help anyone along the way. All right. So before we go into the questions related to signs and symptoms, can you tell us up front, what is your, what was your final diagnosis that was settled on? The diagnosis that was settled on that required the use of enteral nutrition was gastroparesis and intestinal like whole bowel dysmotility. But then there's a whole other associated host of comorbid conditions that go along with those. For me, I have narcolepsy and chronic migraines and just chronic fatigue syndrome and 
a whole lot of chronic pain and rheumatological conditions, but they haven't found an overarching cause of everything. So it's just like every time you go to the doctor, it's like, oh, and you also have dysautonomia. So that fainting and dizziness you're feeling, yeah, that's going to happen. I was like, okay. Or, oh, and you have narcolepsy. So that falling asleep that you're doing all the time where your professors can't wake you up or they send you to take your test in another room and forgot about you because you fell asleep. That happened. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm sorry. Okay. So here's, here's the deal. We work Monday through Friday for those of us that do weekend shifts, Saturday and Sunday with little ones that have GI issues that result in a litany of comorbidities, but they don't have the abilities to convey what's going on with them. Just like you said, so their eyes light up. So that's why when she was so honest about sharing her story, I was incredibly touched because this is an opportunity to talk to an individual who actually utilizes a J-tube so they can describe what were the signs and symptoms. We can walk through what were the diagnostic procedures like, what did they feel like, and then wrap up with, okay, but what is it like to care for a J-tube? What, what is actually going through your mind? Because I'm willing to bet that 98% of us, 99% of us will never encounter this in our professional careers. So for all of us on this end, woman, thank you much. And we'll, <laughs> I apologize that you <laughs> fell asleep in a test and nobody remembered you because that's not cool, man. <laughs> Also, if it was Amy, I'm going to tease her. <laughs> no, it wasn't, but it was crazy because I woke up and I like finished my test because I had looked at my time. I was like, oh, dang, this is the class is way over. So I try to find the professor and I can't find her anywhere. So I don't know what to do with my test. And the professors, this is before I had the diagnosis of narcolepsy. And their professors would be like, you come to class, but you fall asleep and we can't wake you up. So it's kind of scary for us too. It's like, yeah, I'm trying, you. I'm trying, you guys. I'm trying so hard. I'm sorry. Now that I've had drinks with your professors, I'm just seeing their faces do through that. Okay, I'm gonna behave now. Okay, yes. All right. So how did how did you start with the first signs and symptoms of some delayed GI motility issues that resulted in the gastroparesis diagnosis? So my first Signs and symptoms were sort of like really bad constipation and not being able to go to the bathroom correctly for long, long periods of time, like weeks or months between bowel movements. It was, it got to the point where it was really bad. We couldn't figure it out. So they take you in and you do endoscopies and colonoscopies to try to figure out what's wrong. Okay, wait, I already have 400 questions. So how did you get to the point that you weren't pooping for like a week or two? Like how old were you? And did that, like, did you have signs and symptoms when you were younger? In my 20s and it just kind of happened. It was like that happened at the same time as nausea and vomiting happened. And it was just like no one could figure out what was going on. It just kind of came out of the blue almost. Were you having migraines in conjunction with that? Yeah, I've had migraines, chronic migraines almost I had migraines almost daily since 10th grade. And then this sort of like impaired GI motility started more my junior-ish year of college. But I'm also looking back at my freshman year of college, a little bit not related, but I had an established GI already, luckily, because they over-medicated me for my migraines and I had a GI bleed. So that would be why. I was bleeding internally for a hot minute. No one. I, I, ca- I caught the symptoms. I looked at, you know, when you like look at your stuff and you look it up on WebMD and you're like, oh, I'm not bleeding internally. I was. So you mean you mean you looked at your poop? I like how you were like, you know, you look at your stuff and I'm like, wait, what stuff? And then I was like, oh, yeah, poo. We can say poo. OK. And, yeah. OK. And- yeah. <laughs> so they over medicated you for migraines led to a GI hemorrhage. Got you in with an established GI. This happened in your freshman year of college. So everything kind of leveled back out. And then when everything sort of took a really bad nosedive and this GI couldn't figure it out, it was kind of sort of 
we're going to give you an appetite stimulant and that's about all we got. And my mind is like, um, I'd like a second opinion because, you know, when they go in to do a colonoscopy, they'll give you the really intense bowel prep to clear your system out. When one bowel prep doesn't clear your system out, something's going on. And that was what was going on for him to say, you know, I mean, there's really nothing much I can do for but an appetite stimulant. I said, um, I would like a second opinion, please, because I woke up sobbing from that colonoscopy because of the pain I was in. That's awful. Okay. All right. So freshman year, GI bleed. Junior year, you start with you can't poop. Did you have stomach cramping? Did you have... Yeah, stomach pain, stomach cramping, and nausea, like vomiting. Every time I would eat something or drink something, I just wasn't feeling able to eat anything at all. So it was like really bad stomach bug. Almost. It seemed like one of the really bad stomach flus or stomach bugs almost. And then it just never kind of went away. All right. So I'm thinking about our little ones. Did your stomach feel soft on the outside or inside or did your stomach feel hard and firm? It felt really, really hard and firm down kind of where your bowels are because they were so backed up with stool, but it would be really bloated as well. And I wasn't a small person when all of this like started. I started at everything when everything started. I was in the hundred and uh, the hundred, uh, the upper hundred and eighty pounds or hundred and ninety pounds. And by the time the enteral nutrition was needed to be implemented in the span of the year or less than the year, I had gone down to one hundred and thirteen pounds. So okay, so we have to come back to the diagnostics, but I have to put my mom hat on for a second and. My first thought is, one, how did you hand with like handle the psychosocial component to this? How is your heart doing? I mean, yes, physically, how was your heart? Did you have heart arrhythmias? But more importantly, how was how was your heart handling all of this? It was incredibly hard because as somebody that put education high up in my priorities list and my family has always placed a high value on education. I couldn't focus on education and do anything because I couldn't even get out of bed because I had no nutrition. So I had to take an entire year off of school and I was it was I was struggling to leave the bed all the time and it was really hard because a lot of times the people you think that are going to check in on you they might at the beginning but then they just gradually might forget. And I know that everybody has their own lives and things, but you know, sometimes your friends that are chronically ill or dealing with things might need that other little check-in like, hey, how are you doing? It might make them feel a little bit better because they oftentimes feel like they're in this fight alone besides their family. The only people I was seeing regularly was my mom and my sister and my brother just on the daily basis because they lived with me or were coming home from college regularly. So I felt very isolating. That is not a good place to be set and primed and prepped and ready for healing. The support system I had and especially my mom, like when you said you were going to put your mom hat on, my mom did put like her mom hat and her mom pants on and made sure that I was okay. Everything that she, she could think of that she could try on her end, she did. And she would always, because I had gotten to the point where when my organs were shutting down and I was feeling so bad, and in my mind, I was thinking that I was worried about dying inevitably before somebody intervened. Luckily, that didn't happen. But my mom always jokingly tells me, if you die, I'll kill you. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry. No, I knew she wasn't going to let anything happen to me if she had anything to do with it. That's right up there with me telling uh, Theodore that, um, or uh, Goose, I tell him, you cost me 25 stitches you and you were not a cesarean. You will give me grandchildren. <laughs> and he's like, okay, mom. I'm like, pick whichever team you want. Mama's getting grandkids. <laughs> so you got to love a good momism. Okay. So you you're at the... Signs and symptom process, and we're losing weight. When, and, and I have so many questions. 
The appetite stimulant that they gave you, did they put you on periactin by any chance? They did later on, but it didn't really do anything. I can't remember. I think it was ritazapine is what they chose. Is that a medicine? But it's also an antidepressant and an appetite stimulant, but they did use periactin later on after I went to Mayo Clinic. Excellent. Okay. So what, what, also, I'm so proud of you for demanding a second opinion because oftentimes as females, much less younger females, we don't stand up for ourselves or our um, patients or our own children because we have been taught to trust the authority to not question the doctor, lest you come across as disrespectful. So the fact that you stood up for yourself is absolutely phenomenal. But where did they where did they send you? Did they did that GI send you to Mayo next, or did they send you to another doctor, like another local doctor? I got sent to the head of the motility department at Oshner in New Orleans, and I credit that woman with saving my life. She was. So very overwhelmed with the the amount of symptoms and the amount of comorbid conditions that we ended up finding as she kept digging at more things just kept coming up. And she often would spend an hour and a half, almost two hours in those initial appointments, just making sure things were okay. And I have so much respect and love for her. She... I know has the same for me because she always calls me her baby, like one of her kids. And I couldn't be more blessed to have somebody that, you know, would advocate for me in the medical setting and make sure that I get the correct testing that I would need and then the correct surgeries. And then she's the one who sent me to Mayo Clinic to make sure that the treatments that we were doing were the appropriate, like enough of a treatment or the right treatments. And because she wanted to make sure that everything that she was doing was enough. Okay, can we just acknowledge a a leader in the field that even though they're running their A game still seeks counsel of elders somewhere else? That's so impressive and inspirational. Okay. All right. What what testing did she start in on when you got to her? Wait, also, that's in New Orleans. So did your and this is super Super personal. Don't answer it if you don't feel comfortable. But did y'all's health insurance cross state lines that easily, or did you have to get like special permission? Okay, not not all insurances do. And folks, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you're like, oh my gosh, I have this kid and I need to send them to like a really good specialist, but our insurance won't cover it. I have to give a shout out right here and now to Feeding Matters. They have scholarships available for the patients that we serve, such that. If you live in a rural area or say you live in a very urban area, but the advice you've been given is poor counsel and you need a second opinion, but insurance won't cover it because it's far away, it's out of state, out of network, apply for the Feeding Matter Scholarship and then turn around and join us in November and make a donation <laughs> to help pay for the scholarship. So whoop, whoop. Okay. All right. A little joyful plug. Okay, so what did she what did she start doing? What diagnostics? Where did she begin? We started with I think gastric emptying study was one of the first things that we did. We found that was abnormal. And then also they make you eat radioactive eggs and then they make you go take X it's put me off eggs for a really, really long time. Did they glow? I mean I know they don't, but like did you feel like the eggs were I glowing? Mean, physically they don't glow it would have been cooler <laughs> if they did or if they dyed them green like you know like green eggs and ham like that would have been better but like no they're just plain scrambled eggs with some radioactive tracer in them and then they make you get an x-ray every four out like every you know I think it's hour increments just to see how much is left your stomach for young children that can't eat solid foods I know they do it with liquids same fashion in the same kind of style. So it's a little bit different with the littles from the research I've done on those. So that was kind of one of the first things that she had done that. And then she also noticed with the constipation and things like that, that 
the there was some level of probably some level of pelvic floor dysfunction, so I had to get an anal rectal manometry, which was interesting, and we found there was problems there, so I had to get pelvic floor physical therapy. My stepmom absolutely swears by pelvic floor therapy. Yeah, I think it would be definitely beneficial for women that have just had children or things like that. It helped get some of as much, you know, we did as much as we could, but we reached a point where the therapy wasn't helping anymore. Okay, so pelvic floor therapy is if you imagine putting a house on sand, it's going to shift, right? But if you build your house on the rocks, it's going to stand firm. Pelvic floor therapy is your base and you need a strong, firm base in order to have a solid contraction. So if you're thinking about your little ones that have low tone or they have spina bifida or they have cerebral palsy and they have mixed tone or increased tone, if if our tone is off, it makes it very difficult to know how to tell our muscles to have a solid to contract, to have a solid bowel movement. And for the women in the room, sneeze pee shouldn't happen after children. And I often joke and tell the boys, you're the reason I sneeze pee and you're the reason I giggle fart. But like, this also means mom's a prime candidate for pelvic floor therapy. (laughs) So say it the OBGYN. And Kegels don't always cut it, ladies. (laughs) So like, heads up. But You want to make sure that when you're in that intimate of a therapy session that you're comfortable with your therapist. Yeah, luckily I did have a good pelvic floor physical therapist. I walk in, I was in a sorority in college. I was in Alpha Chi. So I was wearing my Alpha Chi sweatshirt into the first physical therapy session. And she goes, oh, I was in Alpha Chi at this college. And then my first thought process was, well, if someone's going to be sticking their finger up my butt, (laughs) at least it's a sister in the bond. (laughs) Oh my god! Oh my god! I laughed so hard. I almost peed. That's great. Uh, I mean, I mean, you gotta, you gotta laugh or you're gonna cry. So here's what we're doing. Woo! Oh my god, that's awesome. Oh uh, yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had a flashback to the first um, OB appointment with our uh, when I was pregnant, and Christian leans in and he goes, "I don't know how I feel about this guy being in your business. He's too handsome." And I was like, "Baby, I just want this thing out. We're good." <laughs> so, yes. Okay. So you had your sister of the not traveling pants assist with pelvic floor therapy and <laughs> the not traveling pants. I love it. <laughs> And and the accident pants situation, and that helped until it didn't. What did you do next in your journey? What diagnostic um, procedure? Where'd y'all go next? About the same time we were doing the series of manometries, discovering that we did a esophageal manometry because, in addition to the vomiting, I was ruminating. Could you feel it coming up? Mm-hmm. It'll still happen. Sometimes, occasionally, and they'll tell you, you know, with the diaphragmatic breathing or other things that might help mitigate it, and those techniques could help. But I'm someone that's been used to diaphragmatic breathing and doing all of that from playing instruments in high school. So, playing woodwind instruments and flute takes a lot of diaphragmatic breathing. So, I was used to that in high school and continuing on just playing on my own time in college. And so I knew how to do the diaphragmatic breathing in those exercises. And so that kind of minimized a little bit on its own. And once we found that things were still kind of not going so well, and I kept continually like lose, was still continually losing weight and couldn't keep anything on me and could barely keep anything down. They sent me to a surgeon to put in a gastric pacemaker to see if some of the symptomology could resolve it, to see if some of the symptoms could be resolved because it's not going to necessarily make things work even better, but symptomatically wise, it could help some when medications may not. It didn't really do that completely for me. But it does help some people a lot. And 
I think it might have helped with some symptoms because you can tell when your battery is dying if your symptoms increase some. And then as things continue to go downhill, I had in my mind a number in my head of weight that, okay, if I go under this weight, I need to seriously be considering a feeding tube of some kind because I just, my body can't handle this anymore. Um, I feel like everything is just getting harder and harder. My pain's getting worse and worse. I can barely even keep anything clear liquid down. This is not good. This is not normal. Something needs to be done and the doctors are doing everything that they can. I got to that point and the doctors were already bringing it up a little bit. And I ultimately had made that decision to go ahead and try that the enteral nutrition with the J-tube. And so I got the J-tube placed and I started seeing uh, 21, 21. Okay. So you went through all of this when I feel like you and I had a very different 21st birthday, ma'am. Oh yeah. You know, everyone wants to spend their 21st birthday in New Orleans on Bourbon Street, right? You know, partying or whatever, because... That's like a big party place is Bourbon Street, right? No, I spent my 21st birthday at the geneticist's office. And mind you, he's in a pediatric geneticist's office. So I'm sitting there in a geneticist's office looking at, you know, the the appliques of like Winnie the Pooh and Piglet on the wall. And I'm thinking, man, 21 is great. (laughs) I'm sorry. No, it is. It's a funny. It is. It's a funny story. Okay, ladies, would y'all okay, ladies and gents to the dudes in the room. Um, you also don't you also do acting as well? I I just saw all the theatrical expressions um flit across my mind of your hand gestures when you were giving that. And I'm like, oh my god, yes, yes. Uh also I really want to go to New Orleans. I've never been, so this would be um yes, but so that is not how most people spend 21, but Dear God, you've handled this with insurmountable, like, honey, you, you're made of steel. So what was that like? Did they, were you inpatient? Were you overnight? Did they, talk me through that. When they placed the J-tube because it's a little bit more intensive than a G-tube, it was an overnight stay, and I think I stayed a day or two also, just when they were trying to, because they placed it, and then they wanted to start the nutrition there and make sure that I was okay with running it and things. But they don't tell you everything you need to know when you're there. And so you get home and things go wrong. For a lot of people's first J-tubes, they use a like a what they call it the red robin tube which is just like a foley catheter and they place it in and they stitch it in and that is the worst idea ever in a million years if if i could say anything to anybody that's getting a j-tube do not let them place a red rubber catheter as a j-tube and stitch it in your body don't let them do it don't let them do it it's no not a good idea i know my body specifically rejected the stitches so we had to unstitch it and then just have it held in place by some other securement device. But that's also bad because then it would just start fall. It just fell out of my body a couple times. That wasn't cool. And so once we switched to a tube that had a balloon securement device, it was much, much better. But at the same time, having that nutrition source, still really not eating or drinking much of my mouth, I was still vomiting bile in stomach secretions and acid and things 20 plus times a day it to the point where it was just crazy and then I made the decision I was like okay I know that a lot of patients with gastroparesis since their stomachs aren't working they don't empty their own stomach secretions and stomach acid normally and so a lot of them will have a g-tube to vent or drain and so I had made the decision it was later on to get that second tube placed. And that was a much different placement, like an in and out kind of thing. I went in and had the tube placed, went home that day. So it was totally so different. So do you have a GJ now or do you have a G and a J? A G and a J. They're two separate tubes. And for a lot of people that vomit a lot with GJ tubes, the J branch will flip into the stomach often. So 
I know with adults, they sometimes don't like to place a GJ in them and they will more than likely go with two separate tubes. Or if you're vomiting a lot, they'll go with two separate tubes. But I know with littles who might be too small to get a J tube, they'll often go with the GJ. Okay. So let's caveat this with um, supports. Um, Feeding tube awareness org, I think is the website. Um, uh, and it's an amazing website that talks about all the different types of enteral um, feeds that our little ones can have. And remember, fed is fed is fed is fed is fed. We got to get that body nourished. But then the website goes through and even talks about care at the site, common um, breakdowns, common problems, and how to treat them. It is absolutely phenomenal. Um, to piggyback on that, um, I, I love, um, dysphagia outreach project so that if you have a child or you yourself are a user of enteral feeds and, um, what if the shipment of formula gets lost or what if the new script doesn't come in or what if you've run out of the help me here it's been a long day and i almost the broke split bears. drain um, sponges thank you yeah, yes i was like the sponges, stuff that you pack tape. around it gauze cream barrier cream yes thank you. tape if you run out of Dysphagia Outreach Project has those materials and they donate them for free. They get donations from all across the globe. It's phenomenal. So what is the Oli Project or the Oli Foundation? What is that? It's uh, specifically for people with enteral feeding. Um, I think they do similar things to the Dysphagia Outreach Project probably in that same sense where you can go on and get formula gauze tape, feeding supplies, feeding pump bags and things like that. If you need them, you just send them like messages and they'll send you an email to tell you what they have available. Okay. So quick anatomy lesson, a G tube goes directly into the stomach. A J tube goes into the second portion of the small intestine. Now here's the catch. Your stomach is designed for bolus feeding. Think about it. Um, when when you go out and um, you have um, a hot date, and um, it's uh, or maybe <laughs> maybe it's a bad date, but the food's really good, so you're trying to rapid fire through the meal because the date's not great, but the food is delicious. So you're trying to eat a large quantity of food at one very brief period of time, and then you're gonna ditch, right? <laughs> He's just so pretty, but you're going to drown him out with your salad or your ribs or whatever. (laughs) I was going to say, when I went on those kind of dates, I was ordering something really delicious and then politely bid them adieu. (laughs) But that's not nice. But but case past life, Michelle. So anywho, um, you can handle a large volume at one time and then go on about your merry way. Your jade, your your intestines are not designed for that. Your stomach is. So you can bolus feed a couple of ounces in a very brief period of time, or if you went to a um, football game, basically beer bong your stomach. But you cannot do that to your small intestines. Your small intestines are used to a slow, continuous digestive drip. And if you were to do that to your small intestines, they would rupture horrible, big, bad, ugly things would happen. So it's a slow, continuous feed. So oftentimes we find that our users that have a J-tube, they're fed for 18 to 20 to 22 hours a day. They're connected, which can inhibit, when we think about our PEDS patients or little guys, it can inhibit fine motor, gross motor acquisition because they're connected to a pole or have a little backpack on them. So what's that been like for you? Uh, At first, it was really difficult to adjust to because the pump I had was a bigger, heavier, bulkier pump. The Kangaroo Joey is the one that I started with, and it is a lot, I would say it's a lot bigger and it was a couple pounds versus the Infinity pump, which is a lot smaller, which I have now. So that was hard going up and down. Cause I was still on the weaker side. So going up and down the stairs and doing all the stuff, carrying that all the time, it was really, really hard and really painful and learning how to adjust being connected to things all the time is hard because 
I'm clumsy. And I still get caught on doorknobs. <laughs> I still get caught on doorknobs or um, the sides of dressers or something. But if something they don't really tell you so you don't pull on your feeding tube is always have it tension taped on your stomach or somewhere else. So if you get caught on something, like I do at least once a day, probably just because I'm clumsy, that it'll pull on that tape instead of on the tube and it won't irritate the site itself. And so a lot of these tricks you find from talking to other people that have feeding tubes or just the research you've done, because as practitioners that place the tubes, they don't know a whole lot about living with the feeding tubes because they've never done it. They've never had that experience. So it's hard for them to imagine what that life is like. But you talk to somebody who's lived with a feeding tube for one year, two years, three years, and going on and on and on. And they've got a bunch of tips and tricks for you. Some of those feeding tube moms will come up with these insane tricks that I had never thought of. And it makes so much sense that no one has ever told you about or no one's thought about. And that's why it's just so valuable to have experience from somebody that's been there helping you along when you first start out, especially. So then I have a question. Where do you go to get your been there, done that mom trip? I have a, I, now I don't really need a lot of been there, done that mom tricks because for the most part, I can troubleshoot. You're the one that's been there, done that. But when I was first starting out, I made friends uh, through Instagram, I think it was, where I met her with another girl that has had feeding tubes for most of her whole life because she has chronic intestinal pseudo-obstruction. So, hi, Lauren. I hope you're doing well. Um, But (laughs) she was fabulous, and she's also been on TPN for most of her life as well. So it's interesting to see the perspective of somebody that's that has not only feeding tubes, but is fed parentarily and not anterally. So, and now I'm glad that I've had those experiences because I have a friend who is, get this irony in this, went to my same church growing up with me, has a lot of the same conditions as I do, lives right around the corner, is a twin like I am. She's a speech pathologist. And she got a feeding tube, but it was later than me. So now I can help her out whenever she needs things. So she'll often text me pictures of something or she got a feeding tube placed and she couldn't figure out how to make sure the balloon was okay. I could go and fill up the balloon with the water and make sure that her tube is secure and that she is fine and everything's going to be okay. So we don't have to both go to New Orleans because we both go to the same doctors in New Orleans at Oshner. So I can help her when she's freaking out about things because it's newer for her. But now she's getting to the point where she's not needing as much of the help anymore. So I feel really good to be able to be there for somebody that needs it because at the beginning, it's really scary. It can be really scary because it's new. You are so freaking awesome. Can I just tell you that? Like you just took your own feeding tube fears and turned around and powered them to help a neighbor who's basically your twin. Also, what's in the community? Well, we should probably <laughs> I investigate that. I don't know. <laughs> just, <laughs> yes, just 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 need to um check that, but uh Oh, my stars. But that's why we give and that's why we volunteer and that's why we pay it forward so that you can take what your experiences have been and let me not cry. Talk to us about the balloon. Technical question. Where, what does it feel like to fill a balloon when it's a J, when it's a J tube? It just kind of feels like a little bit of pressure because it's against the inside of your it's not an abdominal wall, but it's against the wall of your, your small intestine and abdomen. It's, it's against the wall, just holding it in place. I, I have like super personal, like intimate questions. How often do you, do you, do you feed yourself and do you get to do pleasure feeding trials like by mouth? And um, what does it feel like to, when we were, when we were all sitting around and giggling and laughing and eating and drinking, I wanted to make sure you felt comfortable and how do we, how do we do that? And yes, all of the above. I personally 
try to eat something by mouth every day just because the whole old adage like if you don't use it you lose it kind of thing and I always drink things because for that long time when I was NPO my saliva had changed so drastically to the point where it was just disgusting my mouth felt disgusting all the time but now I try to always make sure that I'm keeping my mouth lubricated and things like that so the saliva doesn't go back to that sort of state that it was and also make sure I have the proper oral hygiene so that doesn't happen. Like always make sure you're brushing your kids' teeth, even if you're feeding them by a feeding tube and not feeding them anything by mouth. Please, please, please. The most pleasurable foods are kind of those that semi-solid, multiple solid anyway to me. Like if if I could pick one food to eat for the rest of my life, it's ice cream and ice cream melts. So I get to eat ice cream, which is great. But I don't digest it very well and it will make me sick if I leave it in my stomach for too long, which is what's really good about having the G-tube in my stomach for if the volume gets too much, I can relieve some of that pressure or remove some of the contents of the stomach to make sure that I'm not vomiting and the vomiting will still happen if I like do it or something. But I mean, I've gotten to the point now where I know kind of what the limit is and every now and again I'll tiptoe really close to the limit or cross over the limit and then you pay the price a little bit but sometimes it's it's hard to when you want to just experience that sense of quote unquote quote unquote normalcy or normality that you used to have but just when people are sitting around and giggling and eating and laughing just being invited and being able to be there and be around friends is something that I now treasure because I, I know people just don't think to invite you to go to dinner when you can't really eat normally, but I just will want to go and drink a soda with you guys while you're eating your food. That's fine with me. I know that it might not be perfectly fine with a lot of people, but I'm happy with just drinking a soda and if they have like a soup that's pretty at the pretty pureed consistency that I'm cool with that I know a lot of people have portable blenders and they bring those with them it's just like let me whip out my handy dandy portable blender I need to invest in one of those because I do think that would be a really cool funny thing um my my youngest sister has this super super bougie cracked pepper thing attached to her keychain and she's snooty about her cracked pepper which is hysterical because like she just whips it out and like grinds her own pepper right there on our food and it's so and, and granted she does it with flourish and gumption but like Oh my God, it's the, it's, 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 she's a sight to be held when she whips it out and she's like, no, you have to have the good stuff. And we're like, what, what is in Madison's cracked pepper keychain? <laughs> but the um, personal blender um, kind of, that's awesome. Uh, okay. So y'all, when we talk about the little ones that we serve, we need to make sure that they're invited to come too and their families. Because this is where our moms and our dads, our grandparents, they get isolated and they don't need to be isolated. Nobody needs to face a battle solo. Because so much socialization happens around the dinner table or around food, especially, especially in the South. Everything is a meal. Everything is a meal. Everything is food. Everything is eating. And when you're missing out on all that socialization, you're missing out on important family time, important friend time. So just making sure that, and not looking at parents any differently if they're feeding their kid at the family dinner with their feeding tube there too. Like that's a totally valid way for their kiddo to eat with them, let them have their tube feeds with them like it's their dinner, you know? That's a totally cool thing to do. If you had a room full of speech pathologists that are working with a little one, 
um, that is just now getting their J-tube or just now starting this, hey, something is seriously wrong with their gut journey, what would what would you tell the clinician and then follow that back up with what would you tell the caregiver? I think one thing I would tell the clinician is to make sure that they're there for that family because they are going to go through an overwhelming world altering event. It's going to turn that parent's life upside down and it's going to make their whatever, however long their morning routine normally was getting ready in the morning or getting ready at night. It's going to take so much longer. They're going to need extra supports. And that little kiddo, if they're J-tube fed, they might never eat everything completely by mouth. But if they can, if they're able to have the skills to join their family for mashed potatoes at Thanksgiving or like that's all they can eat. Cause I know at the Oli conference, which is a big feeding tube conference that my friend says that they will always just have like mashed potatoes everywhere. Cause that's one food that most people that are tube fed can have in some way, shape or form. So if they're able, yeah, if they're able to have that sense of normalcy with their family, that's enough. You don't have to make it so they're not reliant on a feeding tube because any way you can get nutrition is valid and it's good and it's keeping them alive and healthy because when people tell me, oh, but you look so good with the feeding tube, it's like, no, I'm alive because of it. I look so well because of it. I don't look too like well in spite of having. I look well because of having. So we need to keep in mind that these medical devices, while maybe life-altering and life-changing, they're so incredibly necessary for so many populations, and they might always be necessary. But any sense of just pleasure that you can give to a child by letting them be able to enjoy something by mouth, if it's a, a popsicle or anything, any way that you can help them enjoy the that sensation of eating or that taste of eating, I think would just be amazing for them because everyone deserves to at least taste something. Not feeding tube awareness. Notube.org. I can never remember if it's notube.org or notube.net. One of them sells car tires. The other one is the feeding tube clinic that Dr. Marion Russell OTRL heads up over here in the States. And they're an offshoot of the um, premier feeding tube dependency clinic out of Austria. And they, while they have very strict guidelines for accepting a patient and getting the patient off of the feeding tube, they also um, uh, do work with families for just ex- establishing um, joy and care in mealtimes for the patients that will always need a feeding tube, but want to improve the quality of what they can accept. Not... Um, I'm not sure I'm explaining that well. So like, say they're only accepting. Yeah. Like say they can only accept one or two things, but they want to make sure that like that experience is as optimal as it can be for caregiver and child. Like that's the reason I have the tube, like in my stomach, it's for quality of life purposes. Albeit saving your teeth is one of them, but (laughs) I'm sorry. No, no, no. I love you. Yeah, vomit on teeth is not that's frowned upon. So yeah, 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 yeah. I I got you. Okay, have I? If you've never seen a child throw up through a feeding tube, what what? Um, when I have seen it happen, the child's connected to the tube and it's open, and when they hurl, just like my little guy does after he eats too much ice cream, it just comes out of the tube and not necessarily up. So it's like that contraction and it just comes out. And it's like an instant look of relief on these babies' faces. Well, yeah, a lot of them, when they place a feeding tube, I know in the littles, they'll do a Nissen fund application at the same time so they can't throw up, which is a hard, bad idea for a lot of 
I am so glad you said it just like that. Yes, in certain pockets of the United States, a f- Nissen, if you get a feeding tube, you immediately Our get state a is one of them. Yes. And it is not a good idea. No, in current evidence-based practices, you do not do that because there's so many complications that can happen with the Nissen. And oh, by the way, it can um, uh, tighten. You can get strictures. It can relax. And then you have scar tissue above where it once was or scar tissue below where it once was, which can, can lead to a whole host of other etiologies like difficulty with the bolus actually passing through the pseudo lower esophageal sphincter and blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm just going to quit talking because it just makes me frustrated. And you've permanently altered the anatomy. Yes. You know, casually. Yes. Just casually cutting your child up. Because even though they say it's a permanent feeding tube, once you remove it and that hole heals, it just looks like a second belly button. But on this infant application, that's not undoable from what I understand from reading the literature. We have like 30 seconds left and there's so many other things I want to ask. But what does it feel like when you are connected for your feed and how long is your feed? Do you call it a feed? What do you call it when you connect? I do call it, I call it the, my feed. Yeah, your feeds basically. I don't really, you don't feel anything really in your intestines. It's just a kind of beautiful thing. You don't really feel much of it. At least I don't. I know some people might. It it also kind of depends on how bad my motility is at that time. Because if it's more, if you're more backed up at the time, things are harder and then you leak more. Specifically, J tubes are notoriously leaky. So you might leak more acid or bile around the sides and burn your skin a little bit more. But I can't really feel it specifically. But there was a second part of that question too, wasn't there? Um, yes. How, how long? When do you connect? I connect before I go to bed and I disconnect when I take medication. But pretty much – and disconnect when I take medication, when I take a shower. Pretty much I'm connected like all the time. All right, folks, I love she she says her superpower is she can eat while she's sleeping. And it's it's really it's it's also really great with a J tube like you don't have to necessarily be at an incline when you're feeding. Too whereas like with a G tube you you do or else you risk aspiration. Uh but yeah, so I think that's kind of a plus. Okay, so super quick, hit me up with how do you care for it for your J-Tube site? For my J-Tube site, I, in the morning, I'll clean it and at, and I'll do the same thing in the morning at night. So I make sure I clean around it really well. And then I use, a, personally, I use baby wipes to clean off the barrier cream and whatever has leaked from the, the time before. Um, and I use a, a barrier paste called Ilex and then a different barrier cream on top of it. So there's two different barrier creams I use around the J-tube and then some sort of gauze or split drain sponge. And that's how I do the J-tube. And then the G-tube is completely different care. I'll make sure I clean around it in the same kind of way. And then that one tends to grow hypergranulation tissue more than like the J-tube. So I'm always just trying to use something to make sure to minimize that tube growth, that that tissue growth, and then tape it down in a way that it doesn't move as much so it doesn't cause as much of that. You're phenomenal. You're going to help so many kids. Like you're, you're going to help so many parents. So many parents are going to ask you questions about what does it feel like? What is my little one going through? And through your bravery and your strength, honey, you are going to move mountains that haven't even yet been formed. And I think that was one of the most amazing things when I was working with those kiddos for the parents to be able to ask me the questions because their kiddo couldn't tell them the answers, but to give them a sensation of like what I felt, what was going on when I did this, you know, it felt good to help in that way because it's one of those things you don't really think about. Sweet friend, I am glad that the good Lord blessed my stars to meet you. So, thank you. I feel like we just totally barely scratched the surface. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes, yes, we did. <laughs> Stay tuned for part two. Dun, dun, dun. Because I want to know all about the formula process, the selection process, how you balance gut microbiome. Like, yeah. So we're going we're gonna to circle back around for a part two. Yeah, because we only talked about that sort of thing. And we didn't even talk about like, she's got a port. She's a robot. <laughs> <laughs> Story at 11. Sorry, my, my mother-in-law's got to get a robotic knee and the boys were like, so she's going to be like the Iron Man. And Bear was like, well, I want to get a rocket pack. And I was like, wait, well, how did we go there from a rope? Like, a, no, grandma's just getting a new knee, dude. There's no, there's no rockets. <laughs> so like, yes, story at 11. I mean, okay. I can't go through metal detectors anymore. So, you know. <laughs> Casual. Darn. <laughs> Gotta get that pat down at the airport now. Darn. Oh, oh man. You, yeah, no. Oh, God. Oh, that's funny. Okay. All right. So, honey, if anybody has a question for you, is there, do you, are you comfortable with giving out like an email address or an Instagram account that they could reach out to? Okay. How can they reach you? My email is brianne.dalton at usm.edu and on Instagram I am just Brianne underscore Dalton and I'm open to answering any questions anything you've ever wanted to know about a person's life with a feeding tube I'm a completely open book I think that the more open we are about the differences that make us who we are the more accepting of a world we can be and the better off we are for the future and the better we can serve the populations that we're going to serve. And so I just look forward to being able to serve little that you just need somebody. Awesome. And folks, she's a CF candidate come May 2022. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. All right. She's Every- really plugging the card for me, and I didn't ask her to, but I'm so appreciative because <laughs> your girl's been looking. Oh, oh, my God. That's great. Okay. So, um, as always, hit us up on First Bite Podcast on Instagram and the First Bite Podcast Facebook page. Um, love it when uh, you leave us a review on Apple iTunes. Wait. Nope. Apple Podcast. And uh, be sure to check out Chasing the Swallow on Amazon. You can order it there. And I do love it when you leave a review for Chasing the Swallow on Amazon. Um, Your kind words have, it's been absolutely delightful to read, um, especially after working so hard and so long on that baby. So um, thank you much, everybody. Stay tuned and I will be back next week. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey! 
Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. And uh, for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. Okay. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a uh, lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.